Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome, everybody, to Emporia State Catholics. You're listening to the Orthodoxy Virtual Book Club. I'm Father Matt Nagel, and joined by Patrick Callahan, per usual. And today, that's all right. Work in progress here at the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Today we're talking Chapter 6 of Orthodoxy, the Paradoxes of Christianity. Um, I would say probably my favorite chapter in Orthodoxy. I don't know what your thoughts are, Patrick. No, I'm going back to Ethics of oh, the yeah. Plan. Yeah. I could have I called that one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about, before we get into the chapter, let's talk about this idea of a paradox, okay? What is a paradox? And there was a, a book written in 1947 by a man named Hugh Kenner called Paradox and Chesterton, and he distinguished between a couple of types of paradoxes, but uh, which we'll, we'll get into that. But first, the basic definition is a paradox is something which at first seems contradictory, seems ridiculous, seems absurd, uh, but upon closer uh, closer inspection, we find there to be a hidden wisdom. Uh, we find it to be true. Um, we, we, we are able to see something that at first we were not. And the Catholic faith is full of paradoxes, things that are seemingly ridiculous, but through the eyes of faith, we come to see that they are true. For instance, that God would become man, uh, that um, by dying on the cross, Christ conquered sin and death, uh, that God was born of a virgin, that the meek shall inherit the earth. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, yeah, and I'm going to jump in here. Please. With the, um, you know, I don't think it's in orthodoxy, or maybe I'm misremembering, but the wonderful thing attributed to Chesterton about um, you know, the, the, the stained glass window, and that orthodoxy is like the stained glass window, that on the outside of the church, the stained glass window looks very drab and, and drear, but on the inside, it becomes illuminated. You can tell the story, the picture. Um, and paradoxes are kind of a way of taking you inside the cathedral. Um, the whole idea of paradox is to, is to move you. The para, right, is to, is to move beside in, in Greek. And so it's about changing a perspective. Um, now, no, obviously, that's, not the, that's the secondary sort of meaning of para in there. But it, I think it's one that Chesterton is doing he's, he's picking you up and he's taking you to another perspective and it's suddenly becoming illuminated for the first time i really like that image of the stained glass window because i think that's right because you know i think too there's an element of humility needed to to see that hidden wisdom in a paradox you know maybe the the prideful human being and God knows I suffer from pride. We all do. We've all been there. But maybe that person sees the outside of a stained glass window and thinks it's not worth his time. Whereas the humble man or woman is intrigued and goes into the church and sees something wonderful. So Hugh Kinner, like I said, he, he mentions um, a couple different types of, of paradoxes. You know, there's a verbal paradox. But what Chesterton does, uh, what Chesterton gives us in this chapter is what Kenner called metaphysical paradox. Uh, a metaphysical paradox. And he said the immediate object of, of a metaphysical paradox is praise awakened by wonder. This paradox springs in general from inadequacy, from the rents in linguistic 
and logical clothing. And so what this means is that, yeah, I mean, there are, God reveals these truths to us that they strain the limits of our concepts and our language. And I have a couple of things, a couple of points I want to say about this. So first, it's important that we don't take this too far. Our human concepts, our human language, uh, uh, languages, they are capable of adequately expressing the divine uh, truths that have been revealed to us. So, for example, the Eucharist, transubstantiation, uh, substance, and adic- uh, substance and accident, those are two Aristotelian philosophical categories. They adequately express the mystery of the Most Holy Eucharist, that at the consecration, the substance of bread and wine is converted into the substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, really, truly, uh, and substantially. So that adequately expresses the reality of the Eucharist. Now, substance and accident and transubstantiation, it doesn't exhaustively, um, it, it, it can never exhaust the divine reality present in the Eucharist. It can never exhaustively comprehend the profound mystery of this sacrament, but we can adequately grasp it. The second point I would make is that when we're talking about divine realities, um, we need, the, God is infinite. And our concepts, our language, we ourselves are finite, right? So there is a need for, very often, for a multiplicity of concepts to convey a reality. And so the example I'll give but is... It just I'm going to cut in there. One of the problems with, with infinite and, and finite, too, is our understanding of that term where mere multiplicity doesn't actually get to the, the root no. of what the infinite is, because it's... You know, at, at, at the core there, there's also that transcendental, which we've kind of lost today in Catholic uh, pop culture talk about theology, but oneness or unity. Yes. Which you go back to even the pre-Socratics. I mean, that's the sort of foundational transcendental. And so in that infinite, there's also this oneness. Um, so, sorry, I, I know I cut in on, on you talking about, like, we have to have these multiple perspectives, right. multiple definitions, but just heaping them all up together is not going to get to the, the core of it. No, that's a good that's a good qualification because you're right. And the example I'm going to use is Christ's passion. How does Christ's passion affect our salvation, our redemption? Well, you go if you go read St. Thomas Aquinas on this, he's going to talk about how Christ's passion brings about our salvation by way of merit, also by way of atonement, also by way of sacrifice, also by way of redemption. Uh, also by way as an exemplar um, of, of uh, what we should follow. Um, you know, we, you can't add all those up and exhaust the mystery of the cross, that's true, but also you can't take one of those to the exclusion of everything else or two of those to the exclusion of everything else um, because then, then, you know, when people do that, they wind up with heresy, frankly. So, for instance, you know, the idea of the cross as an atonement, uh, whereby satisfaction is made for our sins. That's what the church has always taught. Well, John Calvin takes it, and he takes that to the exclusion of everything else, and he goes to an extreme that says, uh, that, that would could best be described as penal substitution, that Christ suffered punishment. Um, he suffered the wrath of God the Father on the cross. Um, that's a whole other theological topic, why that's wrong, uh, why it's 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 true to say that Christ offered satisfaction for our sins but did not suffer uh, punishment, qua punishment on the cross, but 
what Calvin did was he took one aspect and he took it to an extreme. And you can't do that. You need to hold all these various things in tension. And even then, like Patrick said, it's not like like merit plus atonement plus sacrifice plus redemption plus exemplar equals the an exhaustive understanding of the cross. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it's uh, it, it's tricky like that. And, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's the, the nerd in me or something like that. But I actually remember distinctly about three or four weeks ago doing the dishes and thinking about atonement and the cross. And and I was just, you know, it was weird dish dish washing thoughts <laughs> um, of, of someone who dabbles in theology as a layman. And I was kind of working through some of it and thinking about it. And, and all of a sudden I stopped myself like, whoa, I'm focusing too much on this. I'm getting into Calvinist territory. Right. I, I, I forget even the train of thought, but I just remember catching myself and being like, this is not it, right? We always have that aha moment that we want to capture, like as a human being that you, you know, is it a divine epiphany or is it just you trying to tidally sum everything up and be done with it uh, and, and just be like, okay, I've categorized that. I've labeled it. I can stop thinking about it and, and move on. Yeah. And I, I think there's a pride there that we all struggle with. We, we want to have figured it out, so to speak. And the only way to do that is to reduce it to our level. And yeah, and that, that was the difficulty. And I, when I was first sort of coming back into the faith and feeling everything out for the first time, I was an undergraduate in Rome. I was a sophomore in college. And I remember distinctly sitting down with my um, philosophy professor, uh, or sorry, my theology professor, because I remember sitting down and saying, I found a philosophical proof for the Trinity. <laughs> by natural reason alone and he's like really go ahead and tell me what you know what two thousand years of philosophy what saint augustine couldn't do tell me (laughs) i remember just looking obviously now it was absurd and i had not philosophically proved anything besides the fact that i did not know philosophy at that point um but uh you know again it's that it's that human desire the, the you know again that's what wonder is though wonder is the the desire to obtain that knowledge um, but we cheat ourselves of, of the, the true way of attaining it if we, if we try to come at shortcuts, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I wonder at the rainbow, but taking a picture of the rainbow is still, you know, doing a spectral analysis of the rainbow. None of these human means of measuring it actually gets you to touch the rainbow in the way that you, when you first see that rainbow, it invokes a sense of wonder, a desire to know in a, in a, in a way that, is outside of our grasp. Yeah. I, I like that image of taking a picture as being contrary to wondering. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time, I've been blessed to spend a lot of time in my priesthood on pilgrimage, either to the Holy Land or to Italy. And oh, man, I know exactly where you're going with this. Yeah. There's, I, I, I don't have this picture anymore. I wish I did. I went, when I first got ordained, I went to Rome with a couple of priest friends, and uh, there was... You know, we, we, we went to St. Peter's early in the morning. We each got an altar to say Mass on. And um, the other two priests, uh, one of them finished his Mass, and he went to find us, and um, he found this third priest friend, and he was kneeling, giving his thanksgiving after saying Mass, and surrounded by a swarm of uh, tourists taking pictures. Well, look, I, now I've been there, and you've probably been there too, is ourselves being that person who's, walking through the art gallery, experiencing it through the lens of, um, of the camera. Yes, I uh, have. Yeah. And, and as a parent, I've been that parent where I'm like, 
wait a second, I'm taking the, am I taking the video or am I being with my child? Right. I'm taking the video because this is a very important moment in my child's life. But why don't I also experience that moment? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I walked into St. Peter's Basilica. I was in seminary and I was spending the summer in Rome doing summer school and my jaw dropped. I mean, it was, it was probably the, one of the major experiences of wonder in my life. Um, I, I, now I certainly wasn't taking pictures then. I've been guilty of doing that too, of being when I should have been present in the moment, but we all are tempted. Well, again, we, yeah, we all are. And it's uh, it's a continual process. You can't, it's not like, oh, I figured out that I do this and then stop. It's just a, you know, right. concupiscence or folly or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of focusing on, on paradox here and we've kind of got sidetracked. I want to bring us back to the, the overall chapter. We want to do okay. something a little different this week where instead of spending too much time on the chapter, you're going to give us a brief rundown, right, Father? Yeah. And then I thought both of us could share uh, some of our favorite passages and dig a little deeper there. Yeah, that'd be great. So I think what you see in this chapter is the most detailed uh, account Chesterton gives of his excuse me of his intellectual conversion from the agnosticism of the modern world, uh, which he very clearly uh, admits to to have being in been in that camp, uh, all the way to orthodoxy. And he comes to orthodoxy through an unorthodox route, not by reading Christian apologetics, but by reading the very sharp and very um, oh, contentious critics of Christianity. Uh, so that's basically what we see here. Um, he's going to find in these critics that they criticize contradictory things about Christianity, and this doesn't immediately lead to him thinking, hey, they're criticizing Christianity for two contrary vices, Christianity must be true. No, at first it makes him think Christianity must be weirder and more wicked than I had imagined. Uh, but in time, it leads him to, to um, think that perhaps Christianity has something right. Um, and that, that actually is a good segue, if you don't mind, Patrick, to the passage I wanted to talk about. Yeah, no, that's fine. I think, you know, again, yeah, and now I'm regretting my earlier comment that I like ethics of Elfland more than this chapter because yeah again my my view this time reading orthodoxy is that is the biographical um perspective and there is more of the biographical perspective in this chapter and i'm assuming that you're about to touch into that well well let's just see what you got well yeah um so in my version of the book this is page 89 uh, but it begins with the Chesterton saying, and then in a quiet hour, a strange thought struck me like a thunderbolt. There had suddenly come into my mind another explanation. Suppose we heard an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objected to his fatness. Some lamented his leanness. Some thought him too dark and some too fair. One explanation, as has already been admitted, would be that he might be an odd shape. But there is another explanation. He might be the right shape. And he deduces from all this that perhaps, after all, it was Christianity that was sane and all its critics that are mad in various ways. So he earlier in the chapter, he, he talked about this. You know, some people say a man is too fat. Others say he's too thin. Some say he's too tall, too short. And he concluded, well, maybe he's a really weird shape. Mm -hmm. 
eventually it dawns on him, maybe he's exactly the right shape. And, and this is really, for me, this is the moment of grace where Chesterton, it suddenly clicks with him. They're criticizing Christianity for being uh, too warlike and too, um, too much of a pacifist. Uh, yeah, I, I, and I have you know, specific you know, thinkers in mind, right? Because you have sort of um, Gibbon and this whole school of thought of, you know, why did the Roman Empire fall? It's because these darn Christians and their pacifist, uh, otherworldly concerns, and it continues to this day, right. of looking at, um, you know, what's the problem in Roman administration in the 3rd and 4th and 5th century? What's the problem with Byzantine administration? What's the problem with, you know, Carolingian administration? Um, why are these, you know, these bodies politic falling apart? Well, it's because they're Christian. Right, and and so the the pacifist, and then on the other hand, you have, you know, all the people denouncing the Crusades, which is perhaps um, more popular today than than the other the other yeah. one. But I mean, it is there in scholarly debate over the centuries. Is, and, is both sides, and not just the Crusades. I mean, you have you have those who will blame virtually any war on. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. We don't have to go into right. to more modern ones, but I mean, that's sort of the exemplar. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yes, all, all their modern uh, up until today are, are blamed on Christianity, um, which it, again, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it's a, a problem of separating people who are nominally Christian from the core tenets of the faith. And you, you see that with other faiths as well with extremists. Um, you know, there are people who are quote unquote Christian who have done atrocious things, Sure, but you know, it's, they're not Orthodox. Yeah. Or, or even if they believe in Orthodoxy, they're not practicing what they believe. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which frankly, I mean, to a certain extent, all of us are guilty of that. Right. Um, yes. Which also doesn't excuse, you know, once you've removed the beam from your, your own right. eye, uh, you are still supposed to help the other person yep. with the splinter in theirs. Right. But one thing that really struck me about this chapter was also Chesterton's intellectual honesty. You know, when you were talking about the question of the religious question, is there a God? Can we know him? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Um, is Christianity true? Okay, these are very important questions. And once a person comes up with an answer and, and, and plants his or her flag on that side, you know, it's very difficult to it's very difficult to look at these contradictory criticisms and explain them and not explain them away. Yeah, that's the funny thing is as I was reading this chapter, I made a note to myself that you know one of the things that I've cut from previous uh, episodes or left in sometimes depends. You've often harped on how difficult Chesterton is. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be a, a difference in our own upbringing and why I have my own particular affinity to Chesterton because I mean, his upbringing was kind of my upbringing in many ways. Um, you know, the same sort of thought uh, authors and, and thinkers, um, the, the aesthetes of the late 19th century, Swinburne, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, you know, the early 20th century thinkers like H.G. Uh, Wells and things like that. Uh, I was into those in, in high school and in college. And, um, you know, what he says about being a, a pagan at the age of 12, uh, in my own sort of dalliance in, um, in my Latin studies with, you know, finding a system of, of belief that, you know, 
what I what I had been raised with, which was you know sort of New Jersey uh, cultural Catholicism. There was nothing really there for me, um, you know, because it was sort of hidden. Um, so the the pagan aspect appealed. The the seventeen year old that Chesterton talks himself about being right, the agnostic by sixteen, and at seventeen, you know, moving beyond all of that, even, um, you know, that was kind of my my route. And so I feel like uh, maybe I don't find Chesterton difficult in ways that cradle Catholics find him difficult because the the story is so similar and the authors and the thinkers, the way coming in is sort of similar to the um, objections that people had in the 19th century to, to John Henry Newman because he had a different grammar and vocabulary for a lot of core Catholic concepts because he had been, not been raised in, in the Catholic yeah. faith Right, he's taking concepts and grammar and vocabulary from from his Episcopalian tradition, or sorry, Anglican tradition, uh, American Episcopalian, <laughs> um, his Anglican tradition, and he's translating them into orthodoxy. And I think the same thing's happening with Chesterton, and maybe that's why I don't find some of what he's doing as difficult as as cradle Catholics do, is because I I kind of trek that same path of of you know flirtations with, with paganism, with agnosticism, with modern thought, and then seeing the discontent that moderns have, you know, all these people saying that this is not how to live a happy life. And then you actually examine their lives and they're utterly miserable. Right. Uh, I think there's a, a great uh, short little book by Paul Johnson. I don't endorse everything that Paul Johnson does. <laughs> um, but uh, I, th- I think the book is called Intellectuals, where is one of these things that, as a historian that you write later in life is just short uh, biographies of famous intellectuals and he sort of holds up in the biography the the contradiction between the the thought and the person uh and you know i at this point i had been catholic for a number of years but it kind of was a reminder for me of oh yeah this is why i'm catholic because these other things aren't adequate mm. they're they're too tall they're too short they're too they're too fat they're too thin um, none of them are just right the way that he's talking about in this paradox. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, what was what was the passage that you highlighted as your favorite from this chapter? Uh, it was about Thomas Beckett, so I have to um, pull it up here. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so the the one I wanted to talk about um, brings in Thomas Beckett, but I'll start at the beginning of the paragraph. This was the big fact about Christian ethics, the discovery of the new balance. Paganism had been like a pillar of marble, upright because proportioned with symmetry. Christianity was like a huge and ragged and romantic rock, which though it sways on its pedestal at a touch, yet because its exaggerated excrescences exactly balance each other is enthroned there for a thousand years. I kind of think of, um, you know, those, those great uh, American wilderness out in the West. Um, when he's describing these rocks. In a Gothic cathedral, the columns were all different, but they were all necessary. Every support seemed an accident and fantastic support. Every buttress was a flying buttress, so in Christendom, apparent accidents balanced. Beckett wore a hair shirt under his golden crimson, and there is much to be said for the combination. For Beckett got the benefit of the hair shirt, while the people in the street got the benefit of the crimson and gold. It is at least better than the manner of the modern millionaire who has the black and the drab outwardly for others 
and the gold next to his heart. Um, as someone who is a um, classicist, a historian, um, married to an archaeologist, um, you know, that struck me too about Beckett and the historical understanding of that. I think of um, how much more colorful life used to be. <laughs> right. Um, we had less things, but they were of higher quality. Uh, and the good things that we had were shared to a greater extent than we sometimes realize. There are good things that exist out there today to exhibit um, fine art to people, like museums. But my answer, uh, I think most people, and you've probably seen Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. Oh, yeah. And there's that scene um, after River Phoenix is the young Indiana Jones where you re you, you're reintroduced to Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones. He's on the boat, and he's looking for that, um, that gold cross. And... Uh, He's getting beaten up and he's losing and he, you know, he's complaining or yelling at or whatever you want to say to the, um, to these looters, um, that, you know, it doesn't be belong in a private collection. No one deserves to have it by themselves. It belongs in a museum mm. and it's a golden cross. And my answer at some point in life, a few years ago, I realized uh, the answer to that that quote in the movies, it doesn't belong in the museum. It belongs in a church. Yes. Um, it belongs in context. Um, the Nelson Atkins, uh, has a beautiful reliquary with the relic still intact. Oh. Right. And, uh, I think a, a year ago or more, there was this like tour, uh, a Catholic rebellion tour of New York museums where they went and venerated relics that were still, you know, uh, still sacred, still consecrated, uh, you know, objects that are in museums. And so they, they went, uh, with a priest and they, you know, did prayer and kneeled and good for them, good for them. Uh, but again, these objects were out for the people and, and most of what you see in a museum is, is not actually what most of the museum houses. And so a lot of it is hidden. So again, um, I don't really think of the modern museum as, as sort of the answer of ret of returning good objects back to the people. And we, we also have a society where these millionaires have, you know, things of great cultural value, but it, it's perhaps our own fault that the culture doesn't encourage us to share these objects in any sort of meaningful way. Does that? No, that, I think that makes perfect sense. And I, I appreciate uh, what uh, you, you know, no insult meant to the, the Diddy chapel, right? But, I mean, the stained glass window in there and the carpet in there are not <laughs> of the, the same sort of quality that you would come to expect in the Middle Ages. If you would like to donate to our <laughs> our drive to, to uh, refurbish the chapel, uh, let me know. No, I agree with you. And uh, this is a dynamic that I've uh, had to wrestle with, defend quite a bit. Um, you know, as a young priest, a lot of younger priests place the importance on beauty in the liturgy for whatever reason. It's kind of a maybe each it, it seems like generations have different emphases. And that's certainly been an emphasis of priests from my generation. And so this can be some tension with older Catholics. And they're saying, why are you spending the money on a beautiful vestment? Right. You know, wh why why are you spending money on a beautiful chalice when you when this could have been sold for 300 days wages? Right, 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 right. And. The point of a beautiful vestment is not I want to show off how good I look in a 
nice vestment. The point of a beautiful vestment is it's beautiful. Other people benefit from it. They're able to enter into. Yeah, it's it's oriented towards the other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you get that kind of in, um, you know, as someone who who dabbles in digital humanities, I'm also kind of aware of like tech culture and this sort of um, fashion of tech culture, which is a not a not fashion is in some ways a disservice to the other person. It's not about your own comfort as much as it is, a, you know, if I, you know, if I'm, you know, giving a, a keynote on my latest uh, hardware or software and I come out wearing my branded hoodie, mm-hmm. right? It's not really about my comfort level. It, it's also about my disrespect for you, the plebs who don't get it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't need to impress you. I don't need to... Um, does that make sense? It does. And th- Chesterton hits on this in other works. I mean, Napoleon of Notting Hill, one of his novels, yeah. this is a big point in one of the novels is just, I mean, even if you think about like what we consider nice clothing, like, 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 like if somebody were to be making a business deal and he shows yeah. up or she shows up in a business suit, what is going to be a gray, black suit, kind of oh, a drab, yeah. dreary suit. And whereas in the past, there would have been this liveliness and this color uh, to someone uh, illustrated by somebody like Thomas Beckett. Yeah, and it's um, it's also a point made by C.S. Lewis um, in the the third novel in the Space Trilogy, which I think this is the second time we brought up the Space Trilogy. So maybe that's our next book club. Hey, I'm all for that. That uh, I, those are my favorite C.S. Lewis books. By they the way. they are by far my favorite C.S. Lewis books. Um, but that hideous strength. We're towards the end of the novel, um, the characters are all robed, and he has this lovely description of how um, the the robes, I don't know what, uh, they, they grant dignity both to the person, and they also, um, you know, are a grace given to the other person, um, as opposed to, you know, with the disrespect I show you today, because, you know, listeners can't see it, but I've come in here with khaki <laughs> shorts and a t-shirt, <laughs> Um, typical layman, uh, disrespecting his priest. Nah, don't worry about it. Well, anyway, uh, no, it it really does. Um, I think, you know, more and more about Thomas Beckett and Thomas More too, um, who's come up lately, um, you know, as we contemplate some of the things that are going on in our culture and our country, um, and issues of religious freedom. And, you know, again, it's the, what you can't see the the hidden sacrifices um which are really the heart of it um and it's the pharisee who you know yeah i don't know the pharisee who who cares for the prominent seat at banquets and the salutation rabbi but underneath is full of dead man's bones he's like a whitewashed tomb and beckett was the opposite he was wearing this you know, maybe it's a little bit of overkill to call it a glorious garment, but underneath he had a hair shirt. He was doing penance for his own sins and, um, you know, offering it up for, for others who needed grace as well. Yeah, and I I have a hard time wrestling with it um, just with understanding what I'm called to do in life. Mm. You know, it's, uh, I don't know... Uh, they're, they're sort of gospel witness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's a, it's a hard line to, to draw. Yeah. 
Yeah. What, what, tell me more about that. Well, just as a layman, right, um, who you, you both want to show them the, the good of the hair shirt. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, what's that all about? I mean, because then that's sort of the, the left hand showing the right hand what it's doing to sort of mix up all these gospel um, passages. Yeah. You know, I actually, I was, I was having dinner with a couple of priests last night, and we were talking about this, about the idea of not so much hair shirts, but the idea of uh, should a priest have a chapel in his rectory where he can do, you know, his, where he can do his daily prayer and devotion uh, unimpeded, or should he go and pray in his parish church or chapel or whatever? There's pros and cons to both. The downside of, of praying in the your parish church or chapel is, you know, people will flag you down and be like, oh, good, <laughs> Father, you're not doing anything. And it's like, well, yeah, actually, I'm doing the most important thing. Yeah. Um, but but um, the plus side of praying in the church uh, or the chapel is that it gives people an example, a witness of prayer. And so that's kind of the tension that, um, I don't know if that's more my struggle of what I think you're trying to convey, uh, the good of prayer, of, of being diligent about it, of, of, of making time for it. Uh, but the temptation, another temptation, though— uh, or the, To be the Pharisee up To front. be the Pharisee up front, who says, look at me, I'm praying, and let me blow a trumpet before I go into the chapel. Right. Everyone, yeah. Unlike this tax collector who is right. coming here. Yeah, but at the same time, it's, you know, yeah, no, I think you you express it much more eloquently than I will even in what I'm saying, so maybe I should shut up, but uh, yeah, it is is sort of that. It's that problem of uh, inviting people into that life, right, Uh, and the good that that has, but then also, um, you know, being a grace to others and not being a, a miserable uh miserable stick or whatever you want to say uh in everyone's side just because you're 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 fasting i mean it's the, it's the same reading we get at the beginning of every ash wednesday right to anoint your head and wash your face when you're fasting so you don't appear to be fasting yeah and um you know i think i think when we're talking about penances especially penances that today would aren't that common like a hair shirt um, I do think those are ones that are best kept hidden because there is such a temptation to pride with them, you know? Yeah. But I think the conversation, or I should say the opportunity, could present itself to where you could, uh, maybe someone you're good friends with, you could explain what you do penitentially, um, what, what, what you do as far as fasting or abstinence, yeah. or, or if you are doing something old school like wearing a hair shirt. and. You know, they they also, a lot of the, they meaning a lot of the saints and spiritual writers will, whenever they're talking about penances like hair shirts um, or or really just any kind of penance, it's always good to bounce it off a spiritual director because of this conundrum, uh, kind of like what we're talking about. Right, and there's always that temptation of pride. Always the temptation of pride, and, and you know, Patrick, one of, the, one of the parts I really love about this chapter is at the end, uh, where Chesterton talks about the thrilling romance of orthodoxy and how people have fallen into the foolish habit, he says, of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, and safe. 
But Chesterton argues there was not never, excuse me, there never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. It was sanity, and to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad. It was the equilibrium of a man behind madly rushing horses, seeming to stoop this way and to sway that, yet in every attitude having the grace of statuary and the accuracy of arithmetic. The church in its early days went fierce and fast with any war horse, yet it is utterly unhistoric to say that she merely went mad along one idea, like a vulgar fanaticism. I, I love that idea, really that idea that he uh, gets at in the beginning there, that orthodoxy is not something safe, heavy, humdrum, drab, boring. There's an adventure to orthodoxy, uh, and he'll get into this in the next chapter, that orthodoxy is really something of a rebellion, uh, yeah. very much a rebellion. Well, in today's culture, too, uh, you know, I think I was telling you before uh, we got together, just everyone's really stressed right now uh, with everything that's going on. And, you know, one rebellion is the the teenage rebellion, which is the, you know, everything's getting difficult. I'm just going to move to Canada <laughs> or I'm going to pack up everything and, and go somewhere. And um, hashtag van life, hashtag van life or micro home or whatever it is. Right. Um, but it's kind of a it's kind of an easy way out sticking it through and, and seeing the, the, ba the battle to the end, the race to the finish line is the more difficult thing that fewer people do. And it's the true revolution. Uh, as, as the Blaine, eternal, the eternal, the revolution. eternal revolution, yeah. which we're going to touch on in the next episode. So I think there's probably no better way to end this one. All right. Well, why don't we close with a prayer? Yeah. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full, full of, of grace, grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You've been listening to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast at the Diddy Catholic Campus Center, serving the students, faculty, and staff of Emporia State University since 1990. To learn more about the Diddy Center, please visit us at www.diddycenter.org. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review, or better still, share with your friends. God bless.